Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. We're doing it right here on our stage. We've got an exciting new act called the Rolling Stones. Let's give them a big welcome. Put your hands together. The Rolling Stones. Um, that is the Rolling Stones. That's from their new album. You know, I'm not a Rolling Stones person. I never have been. I think at a certain point, there is, for baby boomers, of which I am one, there is a fork in the road. And the, one way goes to the Beatles and the other way goes to the Rolling Stones. Um, I mean, there's like lots of other things. It's not like the only big decision in life. <laughs> there's there's myriad other ones. Um, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. No, that isn't. That isn't the same kind of fork. So, um, and I went down the Beatle thing. And so, but I do want to say this. If I were a Rolling Stones fan, I would be pretty happy with this new album. I mean, to me anyway, not a Rolling Stones fan. This new album, which they've just put out, and <laughs> they're, all, they're all 80, the ones who are alive, um, you know, it sounds like a Rolling Stones album to me, and it sounds like the kind of thing that Rolling Stones fans like. But what do I know? Anyway, we are going to do open phones today. Ask or tell me anything is what we call it. Uh, your call could be about a gigantic question, or it could be not about a gigantic question. <laughs> Actually, I think that's an incontestable statement, that it could be one of those two things. Um, but no, I mean, it could be, we have this hill of beans principle, which is your call need not amount to a hill of beans, and it will still receive uh, honorable attention or something. Uh, I, if I seem a little scattered, let me just tell you what happened here. So, like, I don't know, tw- 12 minutes before one, I discovered... That the computer that is absolutely 100% necessary to do Ask or Tell Me Anything was not working at all. Couldn't even be gotten into. And, and we don't have a real redundancy. So here, here's, oh, fortunately, down the hall was Jedi, Jedi Master Gina Matruda. But it's like 12 minutes, and this computer is just dead to the world. It's unresponsive. Uh, and, and so Gina Matruda came down the hall. And he spoke to the computer. He said, Mmm, mm, sick, sick Mmm. I'm not doing a very good Yoda right now. But, uh, <laughs> mm, do, do not say try, merely do. And the computer woke up and <laughs> it said, Yes, Jedi. Uh, and it's working now. But for there was a little period of time where I thought, I don't really know. <laughs> I could do one of my 23 minute soliloquies. And I always have them ready. I could, I could talk for 23 minutes pretty easily. 
but I don't want to. That's sort of not the idea. Anyway, the idea is that you call 888-720-WNPR. If you're not into the alphanumeric thing, it's 888-720-9677, and you bring up whatever you want to bring up. And we have two calls here already, and the computer works. (laughs) And so everything is good in the world until it stops being good. But I bet you it won't. Here's Rob from West Hartford. Get us started, Rob. You've been already waiting a while. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Uh, you're looking for something mundane and uh, a question regarding inflection. Uh, for instance, I live in West Hartford. I went to school in West Hartford. I was an English major in college. Where did I live in West Hartford? Where did the statement become a question? Okay, so this is called up talking. Um, it's, um, I think it begins to be documented. Don't hold me to this. I don't have any reference sources in front of me. But I think up-talking is certainly beginning to be documented maybe in the late 1980s. And, and it's exactly as you say. Uh, where are you from? New Hampshire? Uh, and so, and, and it does. It sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like an interrogatory statement. And if you have an inflection, by the way, you should get an antibiotic and treat it with that. But um, I, I do think I think it comes from uh, a, a sense. I mean, what it sounds like anyway, what it sounds like the psychology behind it is a certain kind of uncertainty. Like, I, I don't want to necessarily lean all the way into this statement that I'm from West Hartford. Uh, so, <laughs> but but then it just became a folkway, right? It, it became an infectious inf- inflection in the sense that just people just started just doing it because they heard everybody else do it. Um, it. It obviously is more characteristic of young people. Always has been, though. I mean, I, I do remember a Roy Blunt Jr. essay that I think is from the 1980s where he points this out. So it's, a, it's an older thing, not a newer thing. Is that of any help to you? Yeah, I was just wondering how they're treating that in English classes these days. Well, I mean, I don't think, you know, I think it's more how are they treating it in speech and rhetoric classes? You know, I don't think the, you know, the English class, I I think the statement is still punctuated the same way. I don't think we're adding a question mark when we transcribe it. Although, let's let AI figure it out. AI is going to do all the transcribing from now on. Let them figure it out. But Rob, thanks for your call. That's a good way to get us started. Uh, He said I'd ask for something mundane. I didn't say that. I said it doesn't have to be worth more than a hill of beans. But Iman is calling now from New Haven, and she never she doesn't do mundane. She doesn't do hill of beans. She she goes straight for the big questions. So here comes a big question. Hi. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I have three things that I would like to say about mortality. Okay. Um, and I'll just say them, and then you can respond after. Does that sound good? It sounds eminently fair. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the first thing is, no matter how long my life is, right, mm. there is an infinite amount of time before it and after it. The second one is, with every passing moment, there is less of my life ahead of me, and there will come a point when there's more life behind me than ahead of me. And then the last thing I want to say is that you know, every atom in my body has been somewhere else before. And in fact, it has spent more time being elsewhere than it has actually spent being inside of me. And will also spend more time being elsewhere after it is inside of me. So those are my three um, thoughts that I wanted to share. 
Well, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't have much to say or any ability to disagree with the first statement. The second statement, I think, is an interesting one, and I'll tell you why. Not simply because of, of relativity, although we could try to go there. Either one of us was really capable of it. But because, in fact, what's the, what's the true midpoint of anybody's life? And, and I think it's a, a more subjective and relative question. First of all, the time that you spend being a baby, I just would write that off. You didn't have any control over anything. People were telling you where to poop. You know, I mean, I just feel like <laughs> these are very unproductive years, <laughs> and you don't remember anything about them. So, I, except you, know, you learn a lot. Oh, you, know, you, you do. You acquire some important skills like walking, you know, things like that. Absolutely. But I'm just sort of thinking experientially. I don't know. I'd be inclined to write those off. Like first five years are just kind of a you know a a layup, kind of a gimme putt uh, of life, and then then life gets going. And I think the other thing is um, is I've already forgotten what your third thing was, but I'm still on the second thing right now anyway. Oh, I know what the third thing was. Never mind. So um, the other thing is, I think it's when I say that it's relative and subjective, we can ultimately decide, you know, like I just turned 69. Um, so I'm, you know, getting ready to go into my 70s. You can sort of decide how important and big uh, uh, your 60s, or your 70s, or your 50s or whatever are what they're going to be, how much enrichment you find in, in, in them, how pur- purposefully, how intentionally you live. Uh, and so I don't think like every decade is created equal. I, I think we bring a lot of things into certain decades and then we're also hit with challenges we're not expecting in certain decades. And so I, I think just doing it as you know, linear math is probably cheating ourselves of some richness and subtlety that exist in our lives. And then the last thing, and then I'll let you respond, but then we have to take another call. But um, Anthony wants to talk about the zipper merge. See, this is what I like about this show. Uh, we're talking about mortality. We're, now we're going to do the zipper merge. But um, so to your last point, there's that – it's sort of that Derek Parfit question. You know, he, he says um, – at what point can we talk about stability of self or being? I, I hope I'm not screwing this up. And if some Derek Perfect scholar is going to call up and yell at me. But it's sort of that whole idea of, you know, the pot and the stove where you're constantly ladling out ingredients, but then you add some more ingredients. You never dump the entire pot out, but it's just like it's that pot of chili uh, that has no one has ever seen in the bottom of the pot in 25 years because it's just constantly being refreshed and added to and changed at a certain point. Can you say, how can you say that there is stability of being? Uh, I mean, it's not just that your atoms were somewhere else before the whole Iman thing got started and that your Mm -hmm. atoms are going to go someplace else. But while you've been alive, most of your body is just changing over, changing over, changing over. And so then we ask the question, so what if the atoms are just changing over, what is Iman? What's the essence, the thing that makes you, you? And I think that's a really interesting philosophical question. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I don't know if there is an essence that makes me, me. Um, I think about, like, who I was when I was, like, five, as you say, when things started to matter, versus 10 years ago, versus now, or 10 years from now. Um, Those people, like, are somewhat continuous, but also different, like, very different. So, yeah, within a lifetime, I'm not sure there is a continuous self. Yeah. I mean, I, well, it's a really interesting question anyway. And 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 I forget what Parfit actually says about it. <laughs> I just know the thought model. I don't really know what he says about it. But I think that's yeah. fair to say. In in some ways, I, uh, I don't know, I've been thinking about this in a different context. But if we 
we, we're so insistent on certainty, right? We're in love with certainty. We want certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're describing, I'm not sure I'm the same person, you know, continuously through my life, is a form of uncertainty. And I think learning to embrace that, not just about that topic, but about a lot of topics, I, I hope I'll be able to get to this in a in a kind of news context over the course of this hour. But I think being able to embrace, embrace that is really very, a very promising and potentially important thing to, to do, right? To sort of say, okay, what if it's not exactly the way I thought it was, which is something that people are very unwilling to do about most topics. You have the floor, and then we probably have to move on, but I would love to hear your response. Um, yeah, I think uncertainty is in some ways the nature of our existence all the time, and we are always trying to like put, yeah, fix things a little bit, like make them more fixed. So, And not just fixed, but also to feel like we know. You know, this is, I'm going to be yeah. getting to this a little bit later in the show with the idea of intellectual humility. I mean, mm. so many people think they, they, they know. I know, I know what I know what the right position is on Israel and the Palestinians. Well, yeah. maybe it would be better to start out not thinking you don't know, or that the thing that you know might not be true. Uh, Absolutely, you can function more productively that way. But you're you're ready to tackle the the big question. I mean, if you're willing to embrace some uncertainty about the stability of your being, that's like a that's a giant one. You got to go write a yeah. poem right now. Go write a poem this second. No thinking. I've, I've already written them. For sure. <laughs> All right. There's no. There's no. Okay, ju- there's, there's no jumping ahead of you in line. I can tell. She's already got the poem written. All right. Uh, now another one of the big questions. I, I would say. By the way, our number. If you want to call in, you can call in. As we, I think, have demonstrated with these two calls. You can call in about anything. Um, so 888-720-WNPR, or I can do a 23-minute 23, 23 soliloquy. Uh, 888-720-WNPR. If you're not into the alphanumeric thing, 888-720-9677. I'm sorry to be laughing. 888-720-9677. Actually, before I go to Anthony, can I tell you why I'm laughing? I don't know. You know how thoughts come unbidden to you? Thoughts that have almost no possible productive meaning. So I just was in my office this morning and I, (laughs) this is embarrassing to admit. I started thinking about, I mean, this will mean nothing to you if you've never seen The Big Lebowski. But in The Big Lebowski, he has a landlord and his landlord is this kind of dumpy looking, (laughs) looking guy who's, first of all, almost apologetically trying to collect the rent, which is vastly overdue. But the other thing, and he, but he's always cutting Jeff Lebowski a lot of slack. The dude, he's always cutting the dude a lot of slack. Um, and, but in return, he wants the dude to come to his dance recital. He's doing a, an interpretive dance recital, and he wants the dude to come and critique that. And I just thought, you know, everybody talks about how the rug ties the whole room together. Everybody's got their favorite big Lebowski. You know, that's just your opinion, man. Everybody's got their – nobody ever thinks about that guy. And, you know, he might be really important. And probably for, there's a whole point of view with that guy where he – you know, the, I'd like to see the movie that he's the star of. He's the center of. Or I'd like to see – maybe I'll write it for McSweeney's or something. Um, just the whole thing taking place from that guy's point of view. And, by the way, his dance recital is just unbelievably awful but, but really sincere too. He really is the – all I was thinking was we don't think about that guy enough. I don't even know what his name is in the, in the movie. But I think he might be more important than we've let on so far. 
All right, so now we're going to talk about the zipper merge. Now we're going to talk, which I think is the name of that guy's interpretive dance piece, too, the zipper merge. Anthony, you have the floor. Thanks, Colin. I am a firm believer in the zipper merge, mm-hmm. uh, but but what I am not a firm believer uh, in are the dirty looks that I get uh, <laughs> when I adhere to the zipper merge. Um so I am curious what your thoughts are on it, um, you know, um, it being more efficient from what I understand, but a lot of people still either not liking it or not understanding. Right. I think I'm correct in saying that they, uh, the, the Maliazzi brothers, Tom and Ray Maliazzi, the car guys, the car talk guys, I think they used to have routine, regular arguments about this. These are two very smart guys, both uh, graduates, I believe, of MIT. Um, and they would have these kind of fake, heated arguments about the zipper merge. One of them believes as you do. And so, once again, let's just sort of tell people the zipper merge takes place when usually when two lanes of traffic are going to be squeezed into one lane. So everybody has to get out of the right lane and into the left lane, let's say. Um, and and to, so to do that, there are, are a number of ways to do it. But ideally, the thing that's supposed to happen is one car goes by, goes sort of through an imaginary checkpoint on the left, and then the the next car on the right can merge in, and then another car from the left, and then another car from the right. Right, and so what you one thing that you do want to do, according to one of the two Maliazzi brothers, is just fill up those two lanes until nobody can move anymore. In other words, there are people who try to merge earlier because they just think, well, that would be a nice thing to do, and then I won't be in the position where I'm waiting to do a zipper merge. They probably don't even use that term, but they just think, okay, so I'll merge way back here, and and. I, one of the Maliazzi brothers thought, that's wasting a lot of space. Just use that space, the, the, just the, the lane you're going to have to get out of. Fill it up until you can't move anymore rather than trying to get out of the lane earlier. I don't know, Anthony, have I, have I, have I described the subtleties of this effectively in your opinion? Yeah, I think you have. And, you know, and I would just, you know, I would add to that that – you know, I read an article that said that some states have actually adopted it uh, as law, so you are required to zipper merge. Although, you know, um, enforcement is another <laughs> question. But <laughs> I mean, you have to attend philosophy classes, so you know, because I don't think this is on the driver's exam. I mean, I haven't taken a driver's exam in quite a long time, but no. So, but I anyway, I agree. I have come to the belief that you have, which is, yes, fill up both lanes, and then one, 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 one by one, uh, you, you merge, and you are given space to merge, and that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, and But you get dirty looks because there are these people who are thinking. Now, some of the dirty looks you might be getting, Anthony, are from people who did the other thing, where they merged sooner than they had to. And now you've instead continued at a more normal speed until the lane filled up, and now you want to merge. And they're looking and going, well, I I was the ant. You're the grasshopper, right? <laughs> I thought about this way before you did, and I made a plan. But you didn't make any plan at all. You just kept going until you didn't go anymore. So you are morally depraved. But I don't happen to agree with that. Uh, I think you're not morally depraved. I, I think what you're doing makes more sense. But I think some of the dirty looks come from people who, who have already merged and then regard, you know, you see what I'm saying. Of course. Yeah. And I appreciate that you uh, 
don't think that I'm morally depraved. No, I affirm your right to your zipper and your zipper merge. I don't think uh, there's depravity in, in either case, but I have to go too because <laughs> I'm all confused. <laughs> Uh, right now. It was very disorienting not to be able to get on the air. Okay, I'm going to take one more call and then we'll take a break. Uh, everybody, everybody will will get on the air, I hope. Um, although I'm worried about Mary from Kent because I don't know the answer to her question. Uh, here's Emily from Norwalk. Hi, Emily. Hi, Colin McEnroe. I used to be in Hartford. used to read about kitty litter as a good way to keep from slipping on the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. Those are the days. Those were the days. I don't even have cats anymore, and I'm writing a book about my dog for the past eight years. Wow. Anyway, this is my this is my question. It's not really deeply philosophical, but how come, like, you went to Yale like my dad went to Yale, and I think I'm so cool because I walk around going, did anybody here in New Haven go to Jonathan Edwards College? And then sometimes they go, we do, and I go, oh, you ruined it. How come people that I did not go to Yale? I went to American. It was fine. Yeah. But it's a lot of, but I love my dad so much. And I love that he went to Yale. But I want to know why we have this thing. Like if you went to Yale or Harvard, say I went to Harvard, man, I went to Yale. Don't be all like, I went to school in New Haven. Because then we know. Right. You know what I mean? Or like, I went to, you. if you went to Boston College, mm-hmm. You're going to say, I went to BC or I went to Boston College. or But Harvard people always go, I don't know. That's how it was. Yes. Okay. So let me yeah, respond. Walk, there's, yeah. a, there's a kind of reverse snobbery at work. That's the first thing. And so, I mean, yeah. the, the, maybe the most classic example, uh, one quite nearby uh, and used to be more nearby for you, would be Miss Porter's, which for many, many years was and probably still is the most elite all girl um, secondary school, yeah. uh, and yeah. I mean Jack, Jackie, you know Jackie Bouvier went there. People like that. So, um, yeah. but they will often say, I don't know if they still do, but it used to be that they would say they went to Farmington. Uh, I went to school. And it's like no, you didn't. Yeah, but I think the idea oh. was first of all, I'm. But I, they also wore pearls and flannel shirts when they came to my church in <laughs> Hartford, and I was like, Ma. The girls from Miss Porter's wore pearls with their flannel when they came to choir practice, and that's kind of a thing too, like a secret. Like we're rich, so we're going to wear these extremely beautiful I, pearls. We're going to be we're we're sort of going to be it's sort of gonna, we're it's rich grunge, you know. It's like Kurt. There, that's Kurt, it. Kurt Cobain actually <laughs> married, you know, an oil heiress or something. Um, so yeah, and so my I, grandmother was on Broadway with Bob Hope, and this is how I know I married the right person because he didn't even. I was like, honey, look, I finally got the DVD of the one episode of The Walton. She was a character actress. He goes, that's really nice, honey, and I'm like. No, it's, you're supposed to be so super. Imp- oh God, I guess you really do love me for me. <laughs> that is so beautiful, <laughs> Emily. It's been as usual wonderful to talk to you. I, I will say this: as I, I think sometimes one's reluctance. I mean, there is a lot of reverse snobbery. You know, I went to school in New Haven and all that stuff. You know, that, there's there, that's reverse snobbery. And saying I went to school in Farmington, what you're really saying is. If you are part of my world, you know what I mean by this statement. And if you're not, I would just assume you didn't know. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's the contents of saying I went, I went to Farmington. But there is also this kind of – it's not just a humble brag as, as we say now. It's um, – you know, not everybody really likes it that you went one of these places. 
Jesus. When I, when I got out of college, I went to work for the Hartford Current, uh, and um, I, I would say the fact that I was a Yale graduate it was sort of a strike against me. And then they hired a new executive editor from the New York Times who was also a Yale graduate, and he mistakenly believed that because I had also gone to Yale, I must be really kind of better than most of the rest of the news staff, and I should be given every opportunity to flourish. You can imagine how that went over with other people at the newspaper at that time who had not gone to Yale. Uh, and I mean, and efforts were made at times, particularly by the managing editor at the time, to give me the job hauling the buckets of elephant feces around just to make it clear <laughs> that I was not entitled to any special treatment. As yes, well, as should be the case. Anyway, let's take a quick break. Uh, Charlie, Tony, uh, Mary, Tony. A lot of Tonys and Anthonys and stuff today. Is there some kind of is it like Tony Stark's birthday? Are we celebrating? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I think I really like that song. It's a new song. Um, it's by uh, This Is The Kit and The Duke of Norfolk. Those are two different musical acts that have teamed up for this one song. And I like it. All right. I think I'm just going to go right down the list here. Uh, without fear or favor, we have about five calls on the board. Uh, by the way, if you want to call in with anything, anything you want to bring up, even uncomfortable questions about this show itself, <laughs> Why did I just invite that? 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. I'm just going to go right down the list here. Without fear or favor, Charlie is going first. Charlie is in Norwich, which I think is significant. Charlie, you have the floor. 
Hi, I just wanted to call. Um, there was a person who was hung in the 16th century who was having a memorial, Goody Bassett, I believe they mentioned. And I just thought that it's impossible to prove that you are not a witch. There's, if you are accused of being a witch, there's no way you can prove otherwise, except well, even after death. Well, that's a good point. I mean, many negatives are hard to prove, obviously, and maybe this one most of all. But so just to contextualize this a little bit, what you're saying is that there are currently memorial services or ways of reckoning with the past, with the unfairnesses and superstitious superstitious atrocities of the past, uh, and to say, sorry, sorry that we, you know, burned you or hanged you or whatever. Um, but really, it's impossible for us to say with certainty that the person who was punished, however they were punished, was not a witch. And so are, are you suggesting perhaps we, we shouldn't? I'm saying she couldn't defend herself. Oh, she okay. Oh, you're saying, you're saying she was she was the one placed in the unfair position. Yes. Yeah. She uh, couldn't defend herself. And the same thing happens with, like, between people and, and cultures and things, when they are, when another person accuses different people of, of negative characteristics, mm-hmm. they often they cannot defend them because the, the negative negativities are, are general and and cannot be yes. disproven. Very, very, very hard to prove a negative, and it's a good philosophical point. I thank you very much for your call. All right, I'm going to. I said I would just go down the queue here. So, uh, Jim from Hartford is next. Hi, Jim. Hey, how are you? Good. So, have I don't even know if it's a question or, or a statement, but I guess that there's a question at the end. So, across the country, there's been a lot of cities that were able to regionalize, right? Like, so merge with their county, mm-hmm. you know, like the Miami-Dade or Denver, all the Vils, Louisville, Jacksonville, they all merge with their counties, right? Well, Hartford specifically has the problem where it's penned in by the only two towns in the state that are older than it is, right? Weathersfield and Windsor. Mm-hmm. How do we get around that and get rid of these colonial boundaries where Hartford can regionalize with its, you know, because it really should be a city of like 700,000 people, mm-hmm. right? But meanwhile, it's 17 square miles and it, it can't grow properly, right? right. So it, it really has no way of competing with other cities that should be its peers, right? Like mm-hmm. Houston, 600 square miles. It's not a peer, obviously, but and Hartford 17. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm very familiar with this. I mean, I would say go even further and say Hartford's even kind of small for a Connecticut municipality. Um, like Glastonbury is way bigger than uh, yeah. Hartford. I think Salisbury might be the biggest town in the state. I'm not, don't hold me to that. But, you know, some of these towns are up around 50 square miles or so. Hartford's yeah, six, like 16. Yeah, Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, Stanford's like 44 square miles. Hartford's 17, right? Yeah. Stanford, uh, by the way, is the future. Uh, this is a whole separate conversation. So I, yeah. I think the problem is that, I, first of all, I'm really sorry to say this, but this is a problem that will not be solved in our lifetimes. Um, and <laughs> you may recall that when Luke Bronin was first elected mayor of Hartford, oh, I know. one of the first things he did is he did kind of this little goodwill tour. He didn't go around yep. to, from town to town. He didn't go to Simsbury and say, hey, let's regionalize. Let's, you know, let's merge some of these dupl- uh, duplicative uh, you know, municipal purposes and stuff like that. And you know, maybe we have like a central fire. Just-. He didn't say anything like that. <laughs> he just said, oh, well, we have some common interests. We have some common worries. <laughs> it probably makes sense to cooperate a little bit. He was almost burned as a witch. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, and, and, they, they just hated him and said, get out of here. Uh, they don't well, want to hear well, that. Here's, 
his famous quote was, you can't be a suburb of nowhere, right? right? And that's true, right? And it's funny because people like to complain about the high taxes in Connecticut. It's like, well, we have probably like 30 fire chiefs, right? Like Berlin has four fire chiefs in Berlin. (laughs) Why does Berlin need four fire chiefs? Why do we need 30 in Hartford County, right? There could be like a commissioner Gordon of fire in Hartford and, you know, and and have like four sub chiefs north, south, east, west, and then have lieutenants or something, you know, like. But then, and, and some kind of like, affor- well, well, some, some kind of affordable <laughs> cave, so that maybe Batman would come here, or maybe the next Batman would come here. Some young millennial Batman would say, "Well, if you're going to go to a system like that, and you have a cave <laughs> that I can rent for fifteen hundred dollars a month, I'm in." Um, but yeah, no, I think I look good gadgets. <laughs> everything that you say makes perfect sense, and you're 100% right, and it's never going to change. I mean, I think bred into the bones of this of the state of Connecticut, it is the land of steady habits. It isn't called that just by accident. Is the idea that these 169 69 sovereign towns crammed into this tiny little postage stamp <laughs> of a state have a kind of sovereignty. And, you know, if you want to, you know, offend somebody who lives in Lyme, Say well, you're the, it's the same as old Lyme, right? Or I mean, that the that would be fighting words. There's just a way in which people love their town. They love the idea of their town. And then when you pair that with suburban paranoia about cities, which is really, or, you know, very jacked up around here. I mean, yeah. I, I think people who I'm not everybody, but people move to Simsbury because they're not in because it's not in. <laughs> Hartford, and you have to drive <laughs> over a freaking mountain to get to, from one place to the other. Uh, and well, it's the, yep. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, so, well, I mean, the thing is, like, there's already a template, right? Like, mm. like I grew up in Berlin. So, are you from Berlin or are you from Kensington, right? So, you can be from both. Yeah. Right? Kensington people live in Berlin. There's no Kensington High School. There's no Kensington Fire Department. Um, so, you know, Brooklyn is a place, even though it's part of New York City, right? So mm. you could create a borough and still be from East Hartford <laughs> or Glastonbury and still be part of the larger conglomerate, so to speak, of Hartford, right? Yeah. I wouldn't and, and I wouldn't that use that particular you know, thought line with the people of Glastonbury. That's not going to get you anywhere. And I also want to say, you know, you grew up from, from Berlin and you're not a fire chief. What have you been doing with your life, Jim? You had <laughs> well, four chances four to be fire chief. In the town... There's only four other people in the town that aren't fire chiefs. (laughs) That's right. Somebody, it's like what Luke said, you know, I mean, you can't be a suburb of nowhere and you can't be a fire chief with no citizens, right? There's some people have to be the people who get the fires. (laughs) Some people get to be fire chiefs and some people are just on fire and they need fire chiefs. Oh, God. Oh, all right. I have to, I have to, I have to move on. Um, Let's uh, talk to Tony in Wallingford. There's so many people. Is it Tony Stark's birthday? Why is everybody named Tony calling? <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. All right. You have the floor. Hey, Colin. Great show, by the way. Thank you. I, in Wallingford. I'm a baby boomer, and I just learned that you're a baby boomer. And I was excited. I said, I'm going to call Colin today. <laughs> I'm sort of a baby a fizzler. Time. But anyway, continue. <laughs> I, um, Like I said, I've been a long time a listener. Hey, I want to to call to to ask if if you could if you if you have some type of an idea or some uh, some some help on why is it that in America we age we age as we go through you know the teens the twenties the thirties the forties and fifties and when you get to the sixties something really really happens yeah 
yep. to our health, heart disease, <laughs> yep. stroke, diabetes, mm-hmm. and it's been in America for decades, and it's and it's 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 one of those chronic thing, chronic diseases that it. it you know, I, I feel that this stage of life is one of the best stages of life. I, I feel that all stages are good, fantastic. But when you get to the 60s and 70s and 80s, it's a fantastic stage of life. But somehow these chronic diseases that we have in America come along and just take away that, you know, that this, the fun, the, 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 this stage of life. Mm-hmm. And um, why is it that we, we know it's here. We've, we know a lot of it is preventable. Why is it that we don't come together and say, let's solve this as, as Americans? Does that make sense? Am I, yeah, am, no, am I, 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 more sense? I, yes, I think you're making uh, quite a bit of sense. I mean, the, you know, the answer is, first of all, we should say that America's status in terms of average lifespan, um, where our rank in the world is, has been falling. Uh, and, you know, yes. you, everybody, everybody thinks of this place as the land of milk and honey and the best place to live and stuff. Well, not in terms of a lot of the indices for a healthy society, things like maternal mortality or just you know, average lifespan. We're doing something wrong here. Some of the problem is with our healthcare system. I mean, there really are two, three, four, or five healthcare systems in this country, and you don't want to be, you know, on the lower rungs of that ladder because you will not get good healthcare. I think another part yeah. of it is we, we really don't think preventatively maybe as well or as much as some other societies do. Yep. Like, I'll just, I'll deal with that problem. <laughs> I'll give up smoking when there's a spot on my lung or something. Yep. Um, and I think also, you know, we eat too much. We eat to be full rather yeah. than, I mean, uh, there are a lot of societies where you eat to taste something. We eat to yep. be full. And I think that yeah. that's, if there's one thing that's really kind of getting at us, it, that might be the biggest thing yep. of them all. That's a great point you're making there, because I joined Facebook in 2017 with one dream is to inspire my generation, the baby boomers, to to address just that, the, the amount of food that we eat. Because, I, you know, since then, since I've joined, I see a lot of the posts mm-hmm. that are related to binge on food and drink, binge, mm-hmm. and, and it's and it's it's posted like it's 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 a great um it, it's it's the good life, and I'm going. Oh my goodness! That yeah. is, you know. I think you're absolutely right, and it's kind of interesting. Like linguistically, I think binge. If you go back to the 1960s, binge is like almost always bad. He, you know, he went on a. It's it was usually about drinking. He went on a binge, uh, and I think increasingly, and then of course, binge purge started to be the way that we talked about bulimia. Um, but but I think binge has acquired more a slightly more positive tinge to it. I think it's okay to binge, binge Netflix, binge this, binge that. Um, and, and that's a slippery slope. Uh, all right. Or a camel's nose under the tent. Or a camel trying to put his nose under the tent that has been pitched on a slippery slope, which is probably the most precarious of those things. All right. We're going to take a break. We have Mary from Kent. We have another Tony, this one from Noank. And we have you if you call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I can't wait to hear from you. You done things for me, oh darling, that nobody else would. Oh yes, you did. Gave me a heart.
And we are back. The technical producer of today's show is Kat Pastor. And the producer of this particular episode is Jonathan McPants. And of course, we have to thank above all the higher being that is Eugene Amatruda because he got us on the air. I mean, really, well, he didn't get us on the air. He, he created situations under which there might be some way to know what I was supposed to be talking about. Um, and that was very important. If you just, you're just tuning in, we had kind of technical problems 12 minutes before air. And, and I also want to say that in this group of me, Pat, uh, me, Cat, and Pants, it, like I don't think anybody seemed particularly worried. <laughs> I think Gene was probably the most worried person. He was also the person, the only person capable of, of solving it. Uh, all right. So, okay. So there's no more stalling here. We're going to go to Mary and Kent. Hi, Mary. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Just fine. Um, I just wanted to know, some states tax Social Security and some states don't. How do they, how is that figured out and why the heck do we have to pay tax on Social Security? And I'll remove myself and let you answer. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't have anything particularly profound or knowledgeable to say about this. I think there are 11 states that tax Social Security, and of course, Connecticut is one of them. Um, I think even within that cohort, the rules are different. For example, in um, in Connecticut, there are ceilings um, at which you have to start. I mean, there's, there's a ceiling below which you don't have to pay taxes on your Social Security. I think like if you, maybe you're an individual making $75,000 or less, it's something like that. You don't have to pay the taxes. So it's it's really only when you kind of get bumped uh, in, into a higher bracket that you have to start paying the taxes. Why is that the case? Well, because, uh, I mean, it's a matter of political will. And it's also the way in which the United States is uh, set up so that states are, enabled to, are able to guide their own destiny and pick their own destiny and pick the conditions under which they wish to live. And there's a great argument for, you know, more uniformity. But... Um, uh, you know, and I, <laughs> the reason that some states tax Social Security is because they want that money, they want that revenue, and they can get away with doing it. Uh, there was not a huge political consequence for whoever decided to do it. I think that's the not very good answer. All right. So let's go to Tony, and then we'll go to Chris, and then we'll see where we are. Uh, Tony from Noank and or Groton, you have the floor. Hey, Colin. How you doing? Good. It's Tony Day. Happy Tony Day. It's, I'm, am I the last Tony? I, you may be the last Tony ever, yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's not my birthday either, but it's weird out mm-hmm. Yankovic's birthday, so I think there's some connection <laughs> yeah. there, but that's all I can say. Hey, um, and hey, here in Groton, we have uh, four police departments, all of them fully <laughs> staffed. Yes. And one of them is Groton Long Point, which is basically a gated community posing as a town. So, I mean, um, there's a little, I think I listen from the other caller there. Yep. But what I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I'm sorry about rehashing something, I, I was on a cruise actually with my partner during your 9-11 um, open phones, and, uh, and it made me think about a few things, but it reminded me, and, and especially about not, it kind of going you know, by the wayside almost, uh, not people not listening to it, but you wrote right after 9-11-2001 this really great uh, piece called Florida, Oh my God! And uh, do you remember it? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm amazed anybody else remembers it. But yes, I did. I well, do. It haunted me for a long time, and I'll tell you, it seems more relevant today than um, than than ever. Actually, with what's going on in the Middle East and all that, and that that you know, Israel, just like just like us back then, didn't really understand the, the world and didn't even understand what 
what is what pe- other people are going through, and we we put ourselves we we just can't seem to understand why they would do things like this. But um, you kind of you kind of explained it very well. It'd be something I don't know if you want to post it on your website or 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 whatever. Again, I was I I just found it. Um, it just came back into my head. Like, yeah. I I listened to the podcast after, so. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. So, well, I, let me just say that I'd have to find it first. I'm going to repost it. Um, I, it was a short story that I wrote, I think maybe somewhere around nine days after 9-11, something like that. Uh, Northeast Magazine had asked a bunch of us to write different kinds of pieces sort of reflecting on where we were. I wrote a short story from the point of view uh, of one of the attackers. Uh, you know, they, they went through a period where they were down in Florida uh, and, and it was about his time down there and the thoughts going through his head and all this kind of stuff. It was a very strange exercise, but I'll, also I just remember feeling so unmoored from reality at the time that it was kind of easier than it might have been at other times. And there were some people who really object, objected to that piece to the extent that it it said that there was a point of view that somebody like that could have. But obviously exactly. everybody has a point of view. Um, yeah. And I'll say a couple of other things. One of them is – as we're going through what we're going through right now with Israel uh, and the Palestinians, I've been attracted to pieces that at least explore that. There's a piece in the Washington Post about intellectual humi- humility, which I really recommend to people. And then Judith Butler, Butler, writing, I think, in the London Review of Books, did a remarkable piece just about how to think through these things. And as you suggest— how to think about how everybody's thinking, you know, not just about how your side is thinking or your subgroup is thinking, but how to think about how everybody's thinking. And we're not good at that, uh, but but it is another part of it, or it's an important part of it. And the last thing I'll recommend to you, just because you said you were on this cruise, is um, the podcast 912, which was uh, developed by, I, th- I think, a guy named Dan Tabersky. I think I have his name right. Um, but it's called 912, and, and it's it's a whole bunch of different stories and uh, and examinations of 9-11 from a different point of view. But it starts with these people who, for like some kind of reality TV show or something, they they were on like a 19th century boat or an 18th century boat, uh, and it didn't have anything. It didn't have any sort of modern things. And so, and they were supposed to live like sailors, you know, in the 18th century or something for this. Okay, okay. And, and so while they were out there, this happened. And it finally, they didn't have like radios or anything like that. But I guess they had maybe one satellite radio for emergencies or something or a satellite phone maybe. Mm-hmm. And so they were eventually told about this. And they were also asked whether they wanted just to end the whole project and go back to the world because the world was in crisis. And they said no. They stayed out there at sea for the allotted amount of time. So... Um, it just a, was a fascinating story. I'm not doing it justice. All right. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Uh, thanks to you, Tony. And we're going to go to Chris from Stanford. This will be the last call of the day. Hi, Chris. Hi there, Colin. What's on your mind? So, yeah, I'd love to, a few minutes ago, I'm, you, had, you had mentioned that Stanford is the future, but that's a story for another show. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I've got to call you about that. Um, I'm originally from New Britain. Uh, I went to uh, high school in West Hartford, and then I'm sort of an itinerant Connecticut person, lived in Cheshire for uh, many years, and now I've been in Stanford for 11 years, and I absolutely love Stanford. Um, I joined a group of uh, community volunteers. It's an advocacy advocacy group called People Friendly Stanford, uh, which is trying to create uh, more walkable, bikeable neighborhoods, improving transit, and 
Uh, well, so I'll tell you what I meant by that statement, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt because we're almost out of, the sh- out of time with the show. Yeah. And before we ran out of time with the show, I had meant to do a correction from Friday, which is a, one of our panelists on Friday was talking about, apropos of music, how American artists, as he said, are less and less rulers of the pop- popular music world, that you know, international artists uh, coming online, like Burna Boy was one of the people that he, he mentioned. But he also mentioned Bad Bunny. Since then, somebody has correctly pointed out that Bad Bunny is, in fact, an American artist from Puerto Rico. So um, I just wanted to set that record straight. You know, what I've been thinking about, and I'm going to talk to my editor at Hearst, John Brunig, about this at some point, because he's, he's like Mr. Stanford. Um, but he's a great I, guy. yeah, I was he's a really good guy. I I was um, looking at vote totals, just the the number of votes cast in statewide elections. Uh, I don't know why, because I'm a geek. I guess I was just geeking out of that numbers. Stanford casts way more votes than any other <laughs> any other city. When we talk about the big cities in electoral politics, we tend to go New Haven, Bridgeport, Hartford. Stanford actually casts more votes. I think by a lot, by a, a sizable margin. And I think we underestimate the kind of impact that Stanford does have on electoral politics and can have on the future of the state. I, it's I, For that reason, I would say don't sleep on Caroline Simmons. That doesn't sound right. But pay attention to <laughs> Caroline Simmons, the mayor of Hartford, um, of Stanford, because I, I actually do think just by dint of being mayor of Stanford, she's an important person. She's an important person politically in the state if she has uh, ambitions for higher office. And typically they all do. Um, you know, pay attention to that because I think Stanford is the sleeping giant of the state. I don't think people quite get um, how big, how important and how vital uh, it is at this point, and it really casts a hell of a lot of votes. All right, we have to stop there, but um, we are very grateful to have you have listened to this. <laughs> My ability to speak in recognizable syntax is ending right at the right time. The show's over. That's what I'm really trying to say. Thank you.